welcome everyone and I hope you've got your all recordings running. So as, as mentioned, today is about um, science fiction. So hello aspiring authors and excellent writers of weird and wonderful fiction. Um, and you might not write science fiction and not many people do, but welcome to the Friendship Circle Writing Seminar number four. And I'm your host today, Scully. I'm a 12,000-year-old floating skull, if you didn't already know. And the only reason that you can hear me uh, is through, I've got a telepathic translator device, which happens to turn my horrible Egyptian, ancient Egyptian uh, accent into an Australian one. If, the, if in case you were wondering, that's where I'm from. And we've got someone from with a New Zealand accent today. We're all aware, we're global today. I don't think we have any Americans, though. Well, sort of. Um, anyway, um, with me, I have, we have some amazing co-hosts who excel in line, I mean writing fiction, um, and they all write different types of fiction. So we'll just start from the top and introduce yourselves. Go for Amy. Yeah. Hey, everybody. My name is Amy Lynn, and I am a formerly traditionally published author. I'm actually also from New Zealand, and I can speak in a Kiwi accent, but I'm not going to do that to you today. Um, I now write on web novel in the romance section. Okay, go, Nag. Yeah, hello. I am the Julian, um, also the owner of the server. I do self-publishing on my own website, though I do not have um, it published yet. That will be way further in the future. Um, I write dark psychological fantasy. And that's about it. Okay, Miss Reality Bites. Hi, my name is Miss Reality Bites, and I've been writing uh, on web novel for some years now. I mostly write romance, but most of my books are quite niche. Like I added um, fantasy, science fiction and stuff. And I'm in Bali right now. And that's it. Okay, the Xing Pen. Hello everyone, uh, the Sync Ben here once more, and yeah, I'm also a web novel, mostly writer, uh, writing about video games or fantasy-related um, uh, books, trying to learn from other people who are starting or doing that for a long time. Okay, very good. That's all our co-hosts for today, and, and as I said, I'm Scully. I've been writing since uh, online web novels or web serials since 2017. I started on World Road um, and I started actually with a fantasy or a lit RPG. And then my second story I wrote was called Daedalus and that's the one most people know me for. And I never contracted Daedalus to web novel and that's on Amazon. I've got four books on Amazon and I get hounded every day when the fifth book's coming out. And that's the reason why I'm hosting the science fiction today. Although my current web novel novel is uh, a lit RPG, which which is like a system novel, and all those fall under science fiction as well. Anything under video games really fall under science fiction. But anyway, we'll move on. As always, the um, author friendship circle are trying to help beginner authors make their first steps into their story. And the idea of today is give a, sort of a foundation about about science fiction, what we know about science fiction. If you were thinking about doing a science science fiction story, but because it's such a a massive topic, a massive genre. We'll we'll focus it down a little bit and talk about some of the key areas and some of the key areas where people go wrong uh, and that. So we'll begin now. So engage your force inhibitors. It's easier to write than to say. And put your holodeck adventures on silent and we'll get into our science fiction. The first topic is, pretty simply, what is science fiction? When you hear the term science fiction, franchises like Star Wars and Star Trek immediately come to mind. 
They're synonymous with space opera um, and going around in spaceships. But there's a lot more to it. Time travel, aliens, imaginary technology and futuristic stories usually fall under science fiction. It's also a popular setting, very popular setting in movies and games, like I was thinking before about cyberpunk. There's not many books around on cyberpunk. I don't think many people probably uh, read The Necromancer. Uh, and, um, uh, and, but then we know it from games and Mystery LED Bites mentioned before, Altered Carbon. Altered Carbon is set in cyberpunk. Um, and that comes in under the dystopian future. So things like, um, things like oh, I was trying to think of that Harrison Ford movie they recently remade, um, Blade. Um, they recently remade it. Anyway, I'll, I'll, when it comes back to me later, I'll bring it back. Anyway, science fiction spans a wide range of themes and um, even, even novels set in modern day where their time travel are really science fiction. Um, any, any altered alternate Earths where the Nazis won World War II or something, that actually falls under science fiction. But we don't want to digress off those. So today we will focus mainly on um, space operas, technology and futuristic. Um, and I'll, I'll just talk about some of the classical subcategories. Cyberpunk, dystopian, post-apocalyptic, hard science fiction, steampunk, military science fiction, space opera, time travel, genetic manipulation and alien invasion, just to name a few. And surprisingly, transmigration, zombie, superhero, vampires fall under science fiction and lit RPG, of course. Um, but let's focus on the core. So I'll throw to the co-hosts now. And um, my question to the co-host is, what are your most iconic science fiction stories? So there can be anything. Uh, and why? One each, please stick to one each. So do you want to go first, Nag? Yeah, um, so um, one thing I definitely thought of, um, also just as a general nerd, is Doctor Who, which got um, a lot of the things that you just mentioned into them um, because they got multiple different um, worlds to go into timelines so they keep playing around with multiple of either cyberpunk, dystopian, zombies, aliens, and all of that, and vampires even. Um, and with, with that, it's relatively, relatively just playing around with everything that science fiction can offer, and it's been become world famous for that. And um, why do you like it? Why do you like Doctor Who? Um, just because it's an idea mindfuck. Uh, but when I when I watch it, um, everything that it introduces in every new episode and every new season, like it comes up with multiple various ideas and ways to discover those and as someone who likes having all inspiration from the world basically come into me and what i do in life having a series and a work such as doctor who um play around with a genre as much as it does as much as possible is uh, it's a briefer to some of the most how can i say it um chained up stories that won't re even be able to branch too much because they limit themselves in everything that they do. Sort of like how they're doing, um, now they have the Marvel alternate universes so they can yeah. tell different stories and not ruin their timeline. Basically, right. they, ruin, like they do everything they can so they can branch out and then discover and play around with as many ideas as possible. Yeah. Well, they've commercialized their ultimate their alternate universe is a way for them to commercialize different stories. <laughs> so it's hilarious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's what they live on. So, 
Um, and we'll get into a little bit more about time travel later because time travel is the perfect um, plot hole creator device. Now we'll throw to Amy Lynn and, and see what her favourite science fiction story is and why. My, if you're talking about iconic, for me personally, it has to be The Matrix, the movie The Matrix. Um, I just found that entire story so inspiring and it opened up a whole new world for me because I had read and watched very little science fiction before that. Um, and I just, I, I loved how the story was built around these characters and built around, you know, sort of semi-magical in terms of prophecy and stuff like that. But they used technology to um, create a world that felt real. And that was the first time I really fell into a world and just um, fell in love with it in that kind of setting. It's a really interesting story, that one. They bring in, um, he, to break the technology, defeat his technology, he's using sort of spiritual stuff like knowing himself and, and you know, it's that there is no spoon, know thyself. It's a fantastic story. I've, I've watched it many times myself. It's a great weak to strong story too. What are the things that uh, um, attracted you to that story that you loved about it? I think, uh, like I said, the the, the primary thing. I found it very inspiring because it felt like it could be real. Um, and, and I've used, um, although it didn't, I didn't use the same aspects as the matrix. There's, there's things that came out of that story that I ended up using in a book later on, just sort of this idea of the time space continuum and being able to, uh, or having the ability to in some way circumvent that or get around it. Um, I just found the whole, the, to me, it, no matter what you're reading or watching or playing, story is key and being able to care about the characters and be involved in rooting for the protagonist. And in The Matrix, I watched an entire sort of cast of characters that I wanted to see win, and they were um, moving ahead and, 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 and taking victory in a way that I had never really gotten engaged with before. So it felt like a really new experience to me. Yeah, I think it had everything. I love the red pill and the blue pill and lots of concepts that came through in that. Um, yeah. And, of course, the kung fu was very, very cool. Um, <laughs> yes. All right, let's move on to the Shin Pen. What was your favourite science fiction story and why? I say um, you have mentioned and, like, when you mentioned that, it just popped in my mind time travel and the terminator in a sense like the, the terminator movies came into my mind and it may not be like like the preference of all although it's i think they are good movies and what i like about them is what this use of a titan has been and has happened pretty much like every movie that is using time travel that it has been brought out so many questions to the community that cannot or haven't been answered in the in the movies or like from the producers and things like that and everyone like is planning and like thinking of these different kind of scenarios in order to make true uh, what how it really happened like okay if the one who was brought back to the to the to the past is Connor's father then the first time how did 
and then Connor is the one who created, who sent him back. How it, like it, all this kind of paradox that uh, using like time travel begins. So, um, yeah, it's a, a little interesting concept of like a mechanic to use, a faction to use that may have brought a different kind of aspect to your story and creates like this different kind of plots, almost like a tree. And the technology was used really well on that story. Like he was. He, he was hard to kill. He had virtually no personality, but he was the Arnold Schwarzenegger character, the Terminator character. Even though he was the antagonist, he was a fantastic character. People don't even remember the protagonist. The guy, well, they, they remember Sarah Connor, but they don't remember the guy that was sent back to to um, being sent back to save her. But they re- everyone remembers the Terminator itself, where he was actually the bad guy in the story. So that's he's actually, that's actually a really really good um, example of a great antagonist. Yeah. If you take like the movies in theory, like he was the good guy in most of them, <laughs> like he was in the bad guy for like the first two, three movies, and then he was pretty much like in the good side. Oh, for sure, for sure, that's typical of Hollywood actors. But that was a great, that's a yeah. great example, and it's time travel as well as um, dystopian future. It's got plenty of uh, science fiction elements in there. We'll focus. We'll focus on. Um, we'll have dystopian in there and futuristic. Earth, and we'll focus when we're doing our discussions on space and that, and we'll um, stay away from things like superheroes and zombies and, and transmigration, even though they're technically science fiction. But um, but we'll just focus on what people feel when you say science fiction, what they what comes to their mind straight away. So that brings us to the next segment, which is what do you need to know to write science fiction? And what I mean by that is, like, do you need to be an engineer or have comprehensive understanding of physics? Um, and then that sort of really depends on the subgenre you're writing in. For example, if you're writing a post-apocalyptic dystopian future, Earth, which is basically there being World War III and everything being bombed to crap, really you only need to know about survival, mostly about survival. You don't really need to know about physics. Um, but if you're attempting hard science fiction set in space, then you're really going to need to be well versed in physics. You could you can do the, you could do soft science fiction, um, but if you're going to do hard science fiction, where you're saying how the spaceships works and how they travel, um, and one of the one of the key plot holes there is that uh, when you have um, two spaceships and they're basically one's one circling Mars and the other one's circling Venus. Um, and then they they get into a fight. Really, it'd be really easy to get away. It would be like very like whenever you see Star Wars and the ships come together and they fight. And but space is pretty big. But um, anyway, let's move on. Just writing um, just writing about space stations and planetary elevators. Well, yeah. So when I was doing Daedalus, I was writing about space stations and planetary elevators, which is basically where there's this massive cable of made of um, nanofibers that are connected to the Earth and then go up to um, and then orbit the Earth. And so it, it actually, it's quite expensive to shoot stuff up in space. So I was, I was researching them and how they would work. Um, and then I was working on an, uh, uh, basically a new energy source, like a new reactor, and I, I spent like 100 hours, you know, uh, researching physics. I'm an engineer by trade, and I still had to put a lot of research into physics and it, the Troika reactor that came and I said how it worked, I still had readers who were physics PhD students picking me apart in the comments. Um, I said, look, it's just a story. Get over it. Anyway, there, there's, and there are ways to get around a ton of heavy lifting on your research if you, if you write soft science fiction. 
and, and I'll give a clue here. If you look at Star Wars and Star Trek, there's massive differences between the two. One continually breaks the laws of physics, which is Star Wars, and while the other, it, it sort of, Star Trek gives a headline for a technology, but it never goes into detail how it works. They'll say, engage the warp core, let's go faster. They never tell you they have a, it's called a warp core, that's their drive that makes the spaceships go, um, and, they, and they have their holodeck and they have their, um, um, they're basically their teleporters, and they're just there. They tell you what they do. They show you what they do, but they never talk about how they work. They never have an episode. Um, that, that they might have a thing majiggy that they've got to fix, but they never go into how it works. And they get around that having to understand physics by just giving things um, their headline, which you could just find off uh, Wikipedia. Um, and it's a great way of getting around having a PhD level in physics just to write uh, science fiction. Okay, so co-hosts, this is, a, this is a bit harder question. We'll see. Kohas, what are the techniques and styles you could use to write science fiction and avoid having a PhD in physics? Have we got any takers on this one? Okay, the Xing Pen. We have a brave man. Go for it. I think, like, I think uh, other than researching, going through, like, uh, different kind of, like, Wikipedia probably most of the time is not, like, a solution because anyone can write anything there. So you're going to have, like, the people who will say, Oh, that doesn't, that isn't true. Like you have mentioned, or like that, that doesn't work on, uh, like that. But well, especially if you're talking about something that doesn't exist. And, yeah, it's you know? pretty much like I think, like a thing that you can do is make something of your own. Like in Marvel, they have made adamantium, a metal which is pretty much indestructible, makes no sense. That can do pretty much like. Uh, anything like that but because it is something made up no one can send there to you like oh that doesn't work like that it's something that i have made so you can make like a new kind of energy source like make oh in the planet that was uninhabited they found some crystals who were producing this strange kind of energy that was like 10 times on whatever energy the atomic energy and clear so no one can say oh that doesn't make sense it's gonna okay, make well, guys or everything like that so yeah making well things later up. on we'll talk about technology because you can get yourself in big trouble when you make a new technology because it can be a generator of plot holes like uh yeah it's, but anyway you can that, that pretty much got to be very careful with yeah a, a small getaway like not making everything up like small details like ne like a new kind of metal that can be maybe a combination of like the rights and like the um, the benefits that one gives and one and it doesn't give so it's pretty much like a, a in the middle ground like to use uh, that while others are not usable so you need to do research of what else there is and of course well, we're, getting, we're getting into the technology topic now the Xing Pen you're moving to the ne- topic that is three down I'm sorry I'm going to have to hold you up there <laughs> yeah no you are gone alright you're in the naughty bin we'll move to Nag he's the he's the next hand up yeah um, so, so it goes to what we talked about earlier and that's the whole um, soft fantasy and hard fantasy also originating from actual science fiction and that is um basically you can either hard describe how every system and everything that you have works or you can just say hey does this thing it does this and it works um in the way that you describe it as you also mentioned earlier um it can create plot holes when you create some new things especially if you don't have properly planned out 
how everything works and you folks them say it works this way at one time and then another time it doesn't work yeah um but it all comes down to of course your skill as a writer and also planning ahead i would say um especially since when it is something like science fiction having established rules that everything goes by even as for fantasy as well in every novel that you write having established rules on what you create and what you want to do and what you've already told prior you can work later on this is a terrible question because now you're going into topics that are further <laughs> yeah, yeah 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 exactly but the, the question is basically how to do it without having a phd and that the way you can do it is just get a phd you start, okay <laughs> you and you're right you've got to be careful when you yeah. create new because you can create problems for yourself later it's just make sure that you have rules established um, for what you want the things to do and then that you adhere and stay by those rules. That's all really. All right. Very good. Very good, Nagla. Um, we'll move on to Amy is next. I'm just going to piggyback a little bit on what Nag said. Um, to me, I think you can do anything in any book. I have a friend, uh, we both write romance, but she ended up walking into a, a science fiction, writing a science fiction series. Um, and we had a discussion about uh, the basically that a lot of the times when we wrote, we didn't want to have to be experts in anything real, because as you pointed out, often readers know more than you do and can end up um, picking holes in what you're doing. And we were both laughing because basically what we had chosen to do in our respective worlds was create um, our own rules, our own um, ways that things worked. And as long as uh, I'm a firm believer, if you want to take the reader with you, as long as you're consistent, as long as you know where you're going, so you know what questions you would ask. I think the, the problem that a lot of authors hit is they don't ask themselves, does that actually work? Or how is that going to affect this other plot line that I'm going to bring in later? Um, if you if you think through where you're going in your story and what the natural logical questions would be about how whatever aspect you're developing is going to affect that, and you have, as Nag said, established rules already in place, um, the reader will go with you, but that just needs to be able to see that it makes sense in in the world that you've built. Oh, very good, very good. Yes, making sense up when you introduce something and it does something, and if it's if if it's over powerful or or all of a sudden it stops working or it's inconsistent, um, that's where the readers start going. They lose their immersion. All right, now let's move on to the next setting. Next, uh, sorry, the next topic, which is setting science fiction as a setting. Um, for the categories we're focused on today's seminar, futuristic, dystopian, and space, both usually have advanced technology. They all um, maybe not dystopian always. There are exceptions, but let's focus on those. Now, you could have a story take place in an academy where you're training mech pilots um, and the characters, whether it's a conflict, romance, friendship, um, the, the, uh, especially the conflict part, it could, could possibly happen in any setting. You could take a story with it's a magical academy set in a medieval-type setting and the interactions, the friendships, the conflicts the, uh, and the romances you could take that and put it in a mech academy where they've got hover bikes and they, they learn to pilot exos and mechs and they have laser guns and um, all sorts of fancy uh, weaponry. But it doesn't change the relationships of the people. Um, so 
So that's right. So while the plot and story elements can be the same, a cool setting like a, um, I don't know, like a space station um, that has, has, it has its own economy, it has its own um, power structures of people, it has like young people, it has um, maybe like a criminal element, it has all different elements within the space station. There might, let's say there's 20,000 people live there, like a deep space nine or a Babylon five. So all that, but then the, and then once you have the space station, the story can be the same. So let's say you've got a cool setting and that setting can add excitement to the story for the reader. Um, and that's one of the best things about, about science fiction. You can take a typical romance, conflict, friendship story, put it in a science fiction setting and it adds some much more exciting elements. Now, the question for my co-hosts are, what are the, some, some of the cool settings that you've used um, or that if you haven't written science fiction that you would like to use or you have read about that would enhance the reader's enjoyment? I just mentioned a couple like a mech academy and a space station. So what are the what are the things that you have found um, or read or want to write a setting that you would think really enhance the story? And there could be a regular story about romance since we have two romance authors here. Have we got any takers? Looks like Amy is going to have a shot. Miss Reality Bites, you've got to, you've got to step up your game. All right. Amy. <laughs> um, I, if you want to go actually sci-fi, so I had forgotten the very first book I ever tried to write was science fiction, and it's an idea that has stuck with me to this day. I tried to write it 30 years ago um, because I think it would work and I could do it better now. But to me, um, the settings that I love the best and the ones that I try to use the most, and I currently write it in fantasy, is a world that in some way, and, I, and, and right now I'm using transmigration, but I know that's not what you're looking for. I want a world that feels like it's happening and I just didn't know it was really happening. So in the very first book that I ever tried to write, which was a science fiction, it was young people who an alien race had come down and was basically restructuring society. And so they had put in place a whole bunch of technological and um, environments on Earth that they had hidden. And these young people from high school were taken into these places to be essentially modified in their behavior in their society. Um, and to me, the, the engaging part or the exciting part of that as a reader, and this is what I love in books that I read, is when it takes me to a place where I'm like, that could be happening down the road for me and I wouldn't even know. And look how cool this is. Um, so for me, and that's just my taste, be it science fiction or anything else, what I want to feel like is not that I have been taken to a completely different world, but that my world has just been expanded um, or, or heightened in some way. And I love that I do it currently with fantasy. That's why I think uh, series like Harry Potter and that sort of thing are so exciting and so popular is because it makes people feel like they could actually walk into it. That's a really good, uh, you didn't use the word, but when you were talking, Amy, I, the first thing that came to mind is you have a, a, a subplot of mystery and your vehicle to deliver the mystery is science fiction. Yeah, you, you'd be right. Yeah, where you're discovering something and there's questions to be answered. I mean, I think all plots do that to some degree. But yes, the, I would agree that is um for me, at least, that's the fun part is watching characters learn and grow and, and um, explore 
and find answers and find solutions themselves that way. Yeah. So the cool mystery is adding value to your story um, as basically a, a sort of a massive world building antagonist. Um, and you can, as the characters are learning about it, um, the main characters are learning about the mystery. Um, so is the reader at the same time and then and you're spoon fitting. So that's a fantastic, that was a fantastic addition. Thank you very much, Amy. So it's a high bar set for you, Miss Reality Bites. So have a, have a shot of this one. So what are the cool settings that you've used, you would like to use, um, you've read about or watched that would add to the reader's enjoyment? Mm, so I really enjoy time travel. Like um, my two pensions when I'm writing, it's about immortals and time travel. So I really love a comic I read like 20 years ago and I incorporate that in my book. And so... This will be a spoiler for my book, Finding Stardust. If anyone read it, then you'll know the story spoiled, but whatever, it's okay. I use time travel uh, setting in this book to make it like it's it's the biggest plot twist. And the story will come full circle with travel. So um, the, the basically the story is about the girl who was left in an orphanage, abandoned when she was little, and she didn't know her parents, wh where did they go? She, she remembered them vaguely, but she would meet them. So her goal in life is just to meet her parents. And she finally found out that her parents are from another planet. So uh, her mother was a princess and her father was a general. They eloped because the princess was supposed to marry the crown prince, but she was in love with this general and she, you know, eloped with him. And then they had her. They left her on earth because the, 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 the king sent people to go after this couple. And they hide the fact that, you know, they have a daughter. So this girl, she just wanted to meet her parents in, 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 uh, long story short, she finally returned her original planet. And unfortunately, when she finally got there, her father was executed just a week before and her mother died uh, just three days before she arrived. So she, she was heartbroken. But then uh, I incorporate not just, uh, you know, the, the sci-fi thingy, but also magic here because in this planet, Science and magic, uh, they, 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 they come together. So he had friend, he had a friend, he's the time master. So his magic is he can control time, but he never brought anyone to the past or to the future before because uh, he didn't know if it was possible. Seeing how heartbroken this girl was, decided I will try even though, you know, even if I'm gonna die trying, I'll bring her to the past so that she can meet her parents because, you know, she, he loved her and then he wanted to give her the only thing that she wanted in life. So when she got there, uh, she met her parents and realized that at the time, actually the princess decided to marry the crown prince, forget her love for the general, but because her parents, her mother, saw her, she realized, that's my daughter. And 
then the princess decided that I have to marry this general because otherwise my daughter will never be born. And the girl, you know, come back to the future and she realized actually the reason why her parents eloped in the first place was because she went to the past and they saw her. So, you know, that's how I, 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 I closed the story. I, I, I love the, the plot twist there and I'm happy I when when I read it, I was like, geez, I wrote this part. <laughs> so yeah, I, I really like uh, time travel and I'm happy that I could incorporate this uh, this setting in my story successfully. Very good, very good, very interesting as well. It was very complicated um, to keep track of all that happening. Next we have the Xing Pen. He's going to tell us about a cool setting that he's used or he's read about uh, that would add to a story that would increase the reader's enjoyment of the story. I think it, and it is actually that's something that I have used in uh, in my story, and it's pretty similar to what Miss Reality Bites said, but not exactly time travel, but but dimension travel. So you have like, which if one using for time traveling, like the multiverse theory. So every time you travel, you travel to another dimension that there are some similarities, some not. But the way that I have been using in my story and the, the reason that has happened is because I wanted to be the fellow author doing like a crossover between our books and like one character of mine would go to his world and one of his world would go and we have like a little more of helping each other in theory so we have like our worlds being of different dimensions and there is like a way that there is a communication because both of us are using magic there are some similarities in how we do things but also some differences and he breaking a character who is uh, very notable in the way of magic in, and in an element that I am actually haven't introduced, but was planning like through her, her for, through that character was able to introduce to the main character, uh, and, uh, further the, the horizons of, um, uh, of it and bringing like different ways uh, to do things, different ways of thinking about how to do things, and um, also maybe bringing like some uh, more kind of um, ways. There may be some uh, someone else who are for this other world, like someone else can have been brought from other realms or other dimensions and things like that. So it has. Uh, been a good experience for both us as for writing it as authors and I think also like the through the comments that we get like the um, the readers enjoying like these characters who pretty much like are in in a place that is have some way differences from where they came but have some similarities and they are trying to get the way back to their place because they want the family back or they have like other things to do so yeah dimension kind of traveling um and opening like this of there are other places that are like ours but uh have some differences also 
I think about this. So each dimension is like an alternate reality or a timeline split or... An alternate reality. An alternate reality mostly. Yeah. Okay. All right. Okay, let's move on to the next section, which is science fiction is not just about technology. If you're writing a futuristic society, they will likely be technologically advanced. Um, However, it could be after an apocalypse event or, as she was just saying, an alternate reality. But something all these stories have in common is their culture. And it's not our culture. Their culture may differ. Um, So, and that's something you've got to take into account when you write science fiction, is it, it can be hard to imagine and create, culture can be as hard to imagine and create as technology is. Um, you've got to think about one of my favourite settings, cyberpunk. Um, sure, it's a cheat when you use a setting that's already been already out there and you don't have to, and, and, but if you create your own, you have to create your own culture. So if you have a group of people um, and it's a dystopian future, they're not going to act and think like we do. They're going to be different. So if you look at cyberpunk, there's, there's technology advances all over the place. They're using cybernetic implants and they use drugs and they, they have net runners. Um, and, um, but the, their, their society's broken down. It's really a broken down where governments are, are, have broken down, the, the welfare um, safety nets have broken down, and it's, every, it's dog eat dog out there. Um, and, um, and it's, very, it's very, a very ruthless society. Um, and then everything's privatised, so there'll be a, a company, a, a city, let's say Chicago, is not run by a governor and a mayor and a police. It's all privatised. It's been sold to a company, and the company is paying for the, the law enforcement and the, uh, the security, and it's all user pays if you, if you don't have that. Um, so, and then there's all these subcultures that, 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 that run in, in the cyberpunk universe where you have... Um, the people who who are basically there's a car culture where they're out on the plains, um, and then you have the gangs, the poor people, and then you have um, then you have corpos, which are very much into the corporate lifestyle. And the, so there's a distinct flavour in here too, how people look with tattoos and piercings. It's very punkish. That's what it's called, cyberpunk. Um, and their style, even their their fashions are, are very different and distinctive. You think about science fiction and um, you know, you do Star Trek, how they're all, everyone's in jumpsuits and it can get pretty boring where everyone wears jumpsuits the whole time. And then you've got to think, and you're thinking uh, mind-altering drugs and devices, um, and it can get very, very complicated very quickly. All right, so co-hosts, what are the cool cultures or societies that you've used or would like to use or you've read about that would add to the reader's enjoyment? Now, just st- strictly speak about cultures and societies. Um, with this. So we have any takers for this topic? I'm going to be an aliens next, which is even more difficult. All right, Amy. Amy's, going to, Amy's always first cab off the rank. All right, Amy, give it a shot. I'm, I'm trying not to be first cab, I promise. Um, I am not going to speak specifically to science fiction, although this comes through transmigration, which I understand falls under that. Um, I'm currently writing a fantasy world where the um, alternate world that can be accessed through um, our world is um, inhabited by people called the anima, which are human beings whose uh, blood or or DNA was mingled with animals uh, hundreds, thousands of years ago. 
and they have the ability to shape shift into uh, different beasts, different animals. Um, and the culture, this is the most, I would say, the most comp comp complicated and comprehensive culture I've ever written. Because within uh, these people, there's several different tribes, and each tribe is based on a specific animal group. And so each tribe has its own culture, and then there's the wider culture of the anima, as opposed to the humans who are coming in contact with them. Um, and I love that stuff. I've always enjoyed those types of environments as a reader. Um, this is the first book, without a doubt, where my readers have been as engaged in the society and the culture as they are in the story. And so I do author chats and stuff where they'll ask me questions and I get to talk to them about how I built that world. Um, but the thing that I love about doing that, once again, you have to know where you're going with your story because you have to know what questions you're going to be expected to answer later. Um, but I think the, the most important thing an author can do is ask themselves why people do what they do. And what's, as you mentioned, there's going to be um, differences in the way people think and act. And so my human beings, because they are human beings, have certain um, gestures, certain metaphors that they use in speech, certain ways that they act that reflect the different animals that they are descended from. And what that does is it creates culture clash. So when a human walks into anima, there's different expectations on them. There's different ways of thinking and the characters around them are confused by the ways that the humans act and the humans are confused by the way the anima act. Um, and it, there's a lot of conflict and a lot of um, fun sort of fodder for storytelling in that. And I was able to take that because I grew up in two different cultures. Um, and even though both spoke the same language, they had very different ways of thinking and very different ways of sort of dealing with the world. So I was able to bring my experiences from travel and from growing up in multiple cultures and, and sort of infuse <laughs> those realistic interactions, the things that you do, that you just do naturally, that you don't even think about because it's the way you grew up in the society you grew up in. When you transplant that into a different society, you can offend people, you can confuse them, you can make them laugh. Um, and you don't even know why, um, and vice versa. They're doing things that can baffle you or hurt your feelings, and they are completely, to them, it's completely normal, and it doesn't hurt each other when they do it. It's really interesting sort of human nature study. But anyway, um, I would just encourage anybody who's building a world, be it science fiction or otherwise, make sure that you know why your people do what they do. So... How does your person or how does your culture deal with <clears throat> anything from sexuality all the way through to, um, you know, is there a hierarchy either in the genders or in um, class systems or, you know, why, why, how has this been built up? You basically have to, on a, on a, on a top level, you have to create your own history to know where your people came from and how they developed into who they are now. That's something that's difficult to do as a pantser, but you're bringing up so many things there that cultures aren't just science fiction. Um, it's applicable to fantasy as well, and you can invent your own cultures. But you've done things like the culture will inform, will form a base layer or foundation for a character. So if you have a wolf character as an anima, you know basically where they're coming from straight away, and then you can just personalise them a little bit so it helps you create that character. And yes. um, I can see lots of great things there. And even they could be have prejudice 
prejudices that go back hundreds of years um, yes. that you can bring in. And um, you're right. And uh, the, they add so much flavour to the story. Um, and, and the prejudices are, uh, the, you, you, when you create a culture, you don't have to do, you can have it fairly, you, you don't have to do hours and hundreds of hours of research, but just adding a, um, saying, okay, like it'll give you a simple one. Elves hate dwarves, dwarves hate elves. Like yeah. it's it's sort of, it's just a prejudice. Like you, you should do better than that. That's quite thin on the ground as a trope. But but you can have, um, especially because you're going off animals, you're basing off animals. So there's lots of fantastic things that you've done there. And it sounds really interesting um, What how it adds to your story. All right. Now let's throw to Miss Reality Bites. What are some of the cultures you've created and used um, that add to the reader's enjoyment? So, like I said, I really love Outer Carbon, and that show inspired me to write my first book on web novel. It's almost 1.5 million words now, consists of many, many volumes. I love it. So, basically, I love the immortality of, 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 of things of Outer Carbon. I ask myself if people can live that long, if they know they can live forever, they can stay young, how would they live? You know, how would they view relationship? How would they view marriage, uh, having children, um, appreciating life, everything, you know, because I, I think a lot of people, we are very interested in the concept of immortality, like, you know, all those Greek gods, uh, Roman gods, they're immortals. Probably it's it, it's created because of this, you know, this uh, interest. You know, uh, people are interested on, on how we can be, um, you know, perfect, how we can be immortals. And uh, if I, when I read, you know, in, in the Bible, Jared, Methuselah, Abraham, and etc. I realized that I study for 15 years, you know, I graduated from university and I learned so much in my decades of life on earth. And I feel like I, I, I've known so much in, you know, in my 20s, 30s, I become wiser, I have more wisdom. And I ask myself, I get to a point where I become like 500 years old, how much knowledge, how much wisdom, Right. So, uh, in my story, there is this uh, group of people, they are immortals, so they found the uh, elixir to immortality 600 years ago, and now the oldest person in the clan is 600 years old, and they, they stay young forever. Uh, they, they always look like they're in their 20s. So, I, 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 don't, I don't make it too complicated, I just make them have their own um own culture like they don't want to have children and they only want to get married after they uh stay with someone for like at least 200 years and etc so basically it's not it's not like really uh it, it's just like our own culture but how we would have this culture if we are immortals, if we don't live only for 70 years. Yeah. Okay. That's very good. Immortals is an interesting culture to investigate. Um, and I think some, sometimes what I'm thinking when you're talking is when you're a pants and you bring things in, you're not doing – if you don't um, think of these things, 
um, beforehand. Like a, we'll talk about Panthers for a second. It, if you um, you can be a Panther, there's nothing wrong with that. But Panthers who don't do any world building, who don't know how their cultures are, don't know what the setting is, don't know everything about their world, are going to have a story that's very thin on the ground. So um, it's important that even as a Panther that you know all your characters, what they're like, what down to the level of detail and your world and your rules and your cultures and your aliens and your technology that will help you write um and then you can then you can pants all you like um the shing pen do you have a culture or society that you've used that adds value to the story I'm going to mention like a, a video game series that has used that is the different kind of currency that you can have in a post-apocalyptic story and i was thinking of like fallout which after like you have pretty much like after like the the world has ended because of uh, atomic bugs and all of that you have the, like the weapons the, the the weapons the the humans as a currency they're not of course you're gonna be go back using gold they may, some may be using but they're using water cups because that is something that because th- that is something that they find in in um, in a great uh, value over there. But there are like different kind of places in different kind of places that they're gonna have like different kind of currencies that be like different kind of items. So depending like where they are, they may have like different kind of currency, which also today, like in today's world, we have di- different kind of we have euros, we have dollars, we have yens, and things like that. So. I think like you this. You can also have barter as well. Yeah. That's this is that's more about the world. That's more about a world setting and a part of the world building that you do. It's not really any. It's it, it, it's a little bit on how people interact, um, especially if they get into barter. But the currencies, like in Dallas, for example, I have bit creds, which are sort of a, a take off credits of the Star Wars and Bitcoin. So people just. Um, use their modern thing with their phone and they just swap. And in my system break story, um, they it's basically a little bit of a monster hunter thing and they, they get key calls from monsters and the key calls are so valuable, they actually become a currency um, because they're so valuable. Uh, it wasn't meant to be a currency. It wasn't created to be a currency, but it's like if you found gold and you go, oh, here's some gold and I'll just... I'll trade this gold and gold, you know, gold was hard to get, but it was still everywhere and you could just pick it up. You could dig for it a gold and then you can just use it to trade and i have that in um in system break um but let's move on to the next section because it's sort of related and we want to keep moving let's talk about aliens and and alien races are really hard to get right um sure you can use tropes but tropes are often simplistic and boring with aliens like especially with star trek uh, does alien races most of the time they're pretty good and sometimes they're very very bad like you think of Klingons and you think of Vulcans, um, where they're just sort of like humans and they're just tw- tweaked a little bit. Um, you know, um, Klingons are just very aggressive people, uh, very, very angry people, and Vulcans are very logical people. Um, and, 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 and Vulcans are probably one of the most iconic alien species in all of um, science fiction. Um, and um, they're just different enough to us. Now, the thing with aliens, to, compared to what we are just talking about before, cultures, obviously aliens have a culture. However, one of the hardest things about aliens 
is they can think differently than we do. They're not humans of a different culture. You could have an alien that's like a wisp or and and or like some energy and it can be just so foreign to us and it can be like these monster novels and 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 where and beast novels but where their thinking and their thinking patterns are different so when you're writing those characters you can't it's you, you have to understand where they're coming from and and give them something that's totally different so they react differently. Um, the, and aliens are something in science fiction which is often done very, very badly. So if you're going to bring aliens in, um, I think the best thing you can do is, is not have too many but make them think differently than humans. Now, let's co-host. Let's throw the co-hosts and we'll keep this one short. We want to keep on moving. Um, what are the, some cool alien species that you've used or that you've read about or seen in a TV series, like I was just mentioning, the Vulcans, um, that 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 you think really bring uh, well the coolest aliens that you've seen that bring enjoyment to the reader. Now let's just stick to the topic. We're talking about aliens, so don't don't go off tangent. Okay, can we have some hands raised? Anyone wants to go? Yeah, there's nothing wrong with going first all the time, Amy, because every someone needs to go first. Um, so we're talking about, and you've already, in, in fact, you've sort of mentioned that your anim, anima characters are almost, almost aliens, um, almost. They're sort of a different race. We don't have any takers for aliens? All right. All right. Well, we will move on because aliens are hard. They are hard. Like you could even think vampires are almost aliens in a way. And how they're thinking um, it, it is is different. You know, they they're carnivorous and they want to eat humans. We're basically food. Um, so if you think about, in a way, vampires are sort of aliens. They could could classify as aliens. Um, all right, next. What's next? So we've got, we've we've got technology, which we really didn't talk about technology too much. Um, culture, aliens. So when you, what's next before you start writing your next science fiction masterpiece? You know, you have to know your world. You know, web serial writers and traditional writers are pantsers. Normally, most web serial writers, web novel writers, are pantsers. Um, I touched on this before. And most of them have a, you have a destination in mind. This is where I want to get to. This is my ending. I'm just going to write to that. But, you know, each day when you write your chapters, you're sort of just making it up as you go along and it just comes to you. And some people plan a little bit more. But... If you're a pantser and you don't know your world in detail, what technology is available? What are the different groups and cultures? Um, if you don't have an excellent understanding of your story and the, the plot holes will appear all over the place, uh, that's okay. You don't have to be a pantser. Um, if, and if you understand your world, so plot holes will magically appear because what will happen is you put something in Chapter 10 and then you'll keep on writing and writing and writing and writing, and, and then your world is evolving as your mind as you're writing. It wasn't fully formed at Chapter 10, and then all of a sudden you have continuity issues and problem um, and problems. All right, so, like, I'll give you an example. In It's a, one of the biggest potholes in, in movie culture or fantasy culture, and that's the time travel device. So when they have a time travel device, you go, why didn't they just go back and kill that dude? When, 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 like um, when MRB, um, Miss Reality Bites, was talking before, I'm thinking, well, why don't you just go back and kill the dude that was going to kill her parents? Or so, like, so 
So that, that, that's the plot holes that open up when you start to bring in time travel because time travel is serious plot hole creating device or creating story element. Um, so I say use them um, very carefully. All right. Now we'll move on to tools. Um, now there's some online tools that you can use to help create a world and culture. One is World Anvil. Um, and you go there, sort of like a wiki, and you can go there and you can create your whole world um, in there. And it, it sort of structured it all for you. So it's worldanvil.com slash author. And you can create a fantasy or a science fiction setting in that. Now, the other authors will just quickly talk about some of the tools that you use to help write, um, help write your science fiction or any other stories. What are the world-building tools that you use? Is anybody take us on that? No? So does anyone use Scrivener? We'll talk about that. All right, we'll go Xing Pens first. Go. Um. So yeah, I think like I own timeline um, uh, tool is quite useful to keep track of the different kind of strings uh, that so can, that can uh, help, that help with the time travel story. In theory, yeah, I guess you can uh, because you can have like an event that happened five and all the details that happened ten years ago, and then you go like when you do a time travel. Uh, over there, you create a different event that happened, and so you can keep track of the whole thing. Of course, like Scrivener and things like that can help you keeping your notes up. But this, you have like a more visual thing of uh, that happened then, that happened then, that happened then. So you can see like the different kind of times, and you can put also like how much you can see like also you can create like the character and when they have birthday and then if you put like in the event that character so you know like oh that character is supposed to be like 25 years old and two months and things like that so you can bring the different kind of perspective of how much time has passed through each event and things like that that sounds like an excellent i like the visual tools whenever i have a um like a, a setting where there's a space station or um, just a, a large island where they can, I do a map. So um, I have everything worked out where everything is. So then when I'm talking about characters going from A to B, it's it's the same in Chapter 10 as it is in Chapter 210. Um, and that sounds like a great... So it's Iron Timeline, I-O-N? Uh, A-E-O-N. A-E-O-N. Okay, very good. Very good. So people can Google that. All right, Amy, you have some tools to talk about. Yeah, a, a couple. Um, first of all, and it's one that probably a lot of authors are already using anyway, um, I always create uh, aesthetics for my books, for my characters, and for my world, so that I have a visual to look at when I'm going to have to describe something. Um, and, and a lot of authors do it for fun, because you can share it with your readers and stuff like that. But I think on a practical level, um, it... One thing that I am noticing, this is a web novel is my first foray into serialization. So it's a different type of storytelling. I'm not a pantser. Um, and in order to have such a long running story and such a wide ranging uh, character pool and all of this sort of thing, sometimes you're going back to places that you haven't been for 150 chapters or things like that. Having a visual that's consistent that you can use to remind yourself how a place looks or 
um, different things that are going on uh, in the world around the characters is really useful. And I know that it's something that, that hits. What's that? I, I was just saying that like, sometimes you've got to struggle to remember what the chieftain's name was. <laughs> yeah. Oh, totally. And I try to keep a character list and everything, but I still sometimes forget to add things and I have to go back and look for them. Um, so just keeping those logistics um, in a place like where they're in one document or one folder where you can find them whenever you want, I think is a really good practice to get into. But one thing I do want to say, I have this conversation because I'm, I'm old. I've been doing this for a long time and I have this conversation with especially young authors, but panzers all the time. The tool that I use for storytelling, and this applies to any genre at all, is called Story Structure Demystified. And it's by a guy named Larry Brooks. Now he's doing it from the perspective of traditional publishing. So he gives actual like word counts and percentages of the story. If you're doing serialization like web novel, you can throw those things out the window. But what he gives you is a story uh, framework and it can uh, literally apply to any plot, any type of character, any world setting. This is not something that's going to stifle your creativity. What it actually does is give you milestone goals um, the types of conflicts to look for and that sort of thing. And the reason I'm always sort of urging authors to, I'm really sorry, I'm going to shut this window. Apparently we have a science fiction movie going on outside our house today. Um, the, the reason I'm always encouraging authors, if you want to be a pantser plot wise, you're always going to hit walls. You're always going to hit fences. And like you say, you're going to end up writing yourself into a corner at some point. But if you, if you insist that you can't be creative with plot milestones, one thing that I would encourage you to do is have a, um, you, can, you can use like story structure demystified, you can use um, writing the breakout novel workbook. There's a bunch, there's a bunch of, of tools out there that will ask you questions and get you thinking about your world and your characters. So it doesn't even have to be the, the plotting you can really um, in depth create your culture like we were talking about. You can create what your world looks like. You can create um, the history. And if you have those sitting in front of you and you already know them before you start writing, your plots that you come up with are naturally going to fall into those things. And you're going to be a lot less likely either to run out of juice where you just can't figure out what you're going to write or to, to hit a, a spot where you, you've actually created a problem for yourself because you didn't know where you were going. But I have I to have say, to I, I write between eight and 10,000 words a day, almost every single day. And the only reason I can do that is because I also spend several hours a week plotting and people say, well, but that's wasted time. And I say, no, the, the, when you know where you're going, when you know what your goals are and you know where you, I've got to get this character from this place to that place, um, you, you can flow in your writing because you don't have to constantly stop and think, well, what is he going to do today? Or what's going to happen with that character? If you invest that, that time up front in, in, in plotting something out, even though you maybe lose an hour at the beginning of your week, the rest of your week, you're going to write so much faster and easier and less stressfully that you're going to gain more than that hour back. Oh, look, I 100% agree, especially with, like, even with the pencils, don't convert them to plotting straight away. But if you understand your world, 
if you understand your characters in depth, um, they they can write the story um, um, for you. Sometimes you put them in a situation together, you know what their personalities are like, you know what the rules of the world are like, and then the story just happens. And I and and um, yeah, I can write. I can work a full full day um, at my regular day job, and then write four thousand words that night um, yeah. because because I have everything. And, and everything in my, I know, I, I don't have a, a plot done, but I have an, I know where I'm headed. But, but, but what I have done is the world, the characters, personalities, um, and, and, and everything in that culture, everything there. And then, and then writing is so much quicker and easier. Um, so I, I agree with you 100% there. Um, let's move on to what can science fiction do for your story? So we talked before about how, you can um, basically have a story. It could be a mystery. It could be it could be some sort of conflict, and you can actually take that story and put it into science fiction. To give an example with Daedalus, originally I thought about writing a, about a magical academy like Harry Potter, and that because I, I was just disappointed that they didn't spend more time in Harry Potter in the academy it was sort of just a setting. I thought, oh, no, let's go to more classes, let's have more quiz matches, let's do. There's all these cool things, and and uh, they just went off and you know fought Voldemort the whole time, um, and. Nothing. Not there's anything wrong with that. Obviously, it's hugely successful and popular. But that's what what, what the feeling that I had. But um, but then I thought, oh, really? That's already done, and everyone's going to compare it to that. And there's not much science fiction out there. So I just took the whole idea out of fantasy and put it into science fiction. Um, and 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 you can do that. So um, so the, the sort of things that that science fiction can do for you is add excitement to your story with the technology, with the cultures, with the alien races, um, and lots of excitement and, and people can get off of that. But there's a few things that you've got to be careful of when you do science fiction. And one of them is Days, I, pr- forgive my pronunciation, Days Ex Machina. And that's a plot device that seemingly unsolvable problem in a story is suddenly and abruptly resolved with an unlikely occurrence. Um, and uh, these are common, and I've got some examples for you. These are common and they, they can ruin stories. And when you hear, you hear readers and other people talk about plot armour, and when they're talking about plot armour, it's usually because uh, something was headed in a certain direction. Oh, magically they just escaped. Um, now, the... The Star Wars prequels aren't exactly known for the logical connections, um, and the Attack of the Clones made some, you know, con- questionable continuity decisions. So when Padme is facing that certain doom in the droid factory, R2-D2 all of a sudden discovers this newfound ability where he can fly. So he gets up, he gets his jets on, and he flies up, and, and he saves it. It's never been hinted about before, never been used before, never existed before until that point in time when she just happened to be need to be saved by it. That's one of the examples of Deus Ex Machina um, and uh, one of the best examples from, from science fiction. Now, another one, another thing is a MacGuffin. Um, and these are things to steer clear of, not to put into your story, to steer clear of. A MacGuffin is a plot device used in film or books that sets characters into motion and drives the story. That's the problem. They're driving the story. The characters aren't driving the story. The freaking MacGuffin is. Um, and it's an object idea and, and, the, and the characters are, you know, usually, you know, running for, driven onto it like a goal. 
Um, and it's usually revealed up front. So Star Wars, the rise of Star Skywalker, one of the recent Star Wars, one of the ones that Nag, Nag has watched. Um, Ray is chasing after a MacGuffin and to bring her to Palpatine. So she needs this device that's going to lead her to Palpatine. Um, and he's hiding out on a planet called Exegol. So the first MacGuffin was a dagger. And once in the possession of the dagger, um, uh, they bring in a new baddie and they have to get the dagger off that. And that all begins when Poe uh, po delivers a line. He says, um, somehow Palpatine has returned, which was terrible. Then then Ray, Poe and Finn, they go to the, they go to the planet where the um, – um, so they use this device to lead them to the planet. They couldn't get to that planet unless they had this device. And she stands on the grass and she holds up the dagger to look at where she needs to go on the fallen Death Star because the Death Star fell from the sky down onto the moon of Endor. Now, if she landed on the other side or she stood in any other place, the MacGuffin wouldn't bloody work. So the moral of the story is don't use technology that acts like a magical device. And um, Star Wars is actually rife with that. It's probably more fantasy than sci-fi. But don't use technology that acts like a magical device. Don't use technology to solve plot, plot problems or create plot armour. Um, use Basically, write your story and the characters are solving things and then it's a lot more fulfilling and a lot more enjoyment for the reader. Um, now, this is a hard question for the co-authors. What are the, the, the worst plot devices or plot armour that you can think of or you've used yourself even. Um, is there anyone can think of any plot armour or plot devices that really annoyed the hell out of you in science fiction or otherwise? Okay, Shing, Shing's got one. Okay. So one thing that may be a little more fantasy-like, but it can be more in the in the sci-fi, I guess, too, is when you have like the character and you mention it, and it is something that I've actually used, uh, that he's half human, half something else, but you don't mention what something else is. And uh, it actually is something that I I have it in my in, in my book and I have seen it like a lot of people are going like, is he, because I, I read or write half human, half question mark, question mark, question mark. <laughs> and a lot of people are just going to assume what it is. So I find it a little funny, but it is also like something quite used. And in the end, when you actually find the truth, maybe like build so much tension about it, while in reality, it's not something that important. It's just like a small detail that has been used for building up something that didn't worth it in the, in the end. We also have Amy, who's got a bad plot device or plot armor uh, that she wants to talk about. Um, one that I have seen a lot uh, in, well, anyway, th there's two. One is where um, the protagonist has been fighting or, or trying to learn something like this whole story. And then right at the end, they have a conflict with the villain and the villain just reveals everything to them like without provocation 
just like you used to see it all the time like in batman where batman would end up tied up over you know a saw that's about to cut him in half and and the riddler just out of glee turns around and tells him everything he just did and everything he's about to do so he now has all the answers he needs uh to to yeah villain monologue ching said that yes that one drives me crazy there's a way to do it that works which is to to create either a series of events or conversation that would naturally actually provoke that kind of information from the villain. But they don't seem to do that. They just seem to be like, I've got you here now, and now I'm going to tell you everything, you know, and that drives me nuts. Um, the early the, James Bond stuff was, was perfect. They would always tie him up and, and uh, he'd be tied up. They'd put him in the shark tank with the laser sharks, and then they'd walk off. <laughs> it's okay, you can yeah, try, I'll, I'll, and they I'll, leave. I'll <laughs> but they also, you're right, they'd also tell him all their plans as well. So he got captured to find out their plans. But go on, go on. Yeah. Um, so anything like that where actually, because when that happens, the, the vehicle that's being used there to solve the story is actually the villain. Um, so it's not as satisfying for the reader. Um, but the other, the other thing that I see a lot, and this would probably, it could, I, I haven't read it in sci-fi, but I could see it happening there. Um, is where there's either a supernatural or uh, magical uh, shift that occurs that has never shown up in the story before. So, like, one of the things about the Harry Potter series that drove me absolutely crazy, because I love those books, uh, was the conversation and essential reincarnation that happened of Harry at the end. There was no indication. There was no plotting no foreshadowing, nothing that indicated that this was how uh, Harry could come to sort of have victory over all of this. And yeah, it just, it, it just felt very empty to me and very hollow after such a rich world and such a rich sort of character development to just be like, boom, here, we're just going to solve all those problems right here in this one conversation. Um, I, and I see, I see that a lot, uh, with ghosts and with magic, I see, uh, people solving those problems and, um, and that drives me nuts as a reader. It drives me crazy because I've been spending the whole time trying to figure out how this is going to come together and to get to the end. And there was absolutely no way, no way I could have guessed it because you just pulled it out of the air. That drives me nuts. So that, that comes back to the planning and knowing how everything works so then you know how they're going to get out of it so you can foreshadow it way. I love foreshadowing stuff in Chapter 40 and then bringing it out at Chapter 140 and the readers yes. go, oh, that's what yes. that was. And you have to so, be intentional yeah, to do missed, that. So not only is this bad plot device, it's actually a missed opportunity. Um, yes, I agree. All right, let's move on. To the last section other than questions. All right, so we're almost done. We're, we're, I'll have to do this part in six minutes. Uh, this one I'm talking quite a bit. Kingdom building in science fiction. So you've got, um, can you can kingdom build in science fiction? Hell yeah, you can. And what's, what's a kingdom without a Death Star or a space station or an underground secret base of doom? I'll refer to my Amazon series, go buy it after the thing. No, I'm just kidding. Daedalus, which is chock full of kingdom building 
Um, and it's all plausible and it fits in with the character's desires and goals and the capability. So it's not ham-fisted into there. And you don't have to have a system novel to have kingdom building. Um, and what what are the readers looking for um, um, and what what a successful order delivers because what this comes back to what a reader is looking for whether it's romance transmigration space opera most readers read to escape they are looking to transmigrate themselves into a wonderful story and empathize with the mc now this is not the rule 100 percent of the time just much of the time they and they are the mc they, they put themselves in the shoes so calling it wish fulfillment is both accurate and somewhat negative framing but 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 when I when I read, I'm doing the same thing. I want to be the bloody hero, and then I get annoyed when the hero doesn't do what I want them to do. Um, just like all my readers, and and this has been true since man first started telling stories. So you look at some really old stuff with Beowulf and and King Arthur, all the same same sort of themes. It's all about escapism. Um, now male readers are usually the purveyors of science fiction. Again, it's a general statement, not the rule. And, um, and, and the personality is the same. But, um, well, I'm just saying that sometimes when female readers love science fiction, they have a similar personality type to the male readers who love science fiction. Um, and they like to imagine having cool things. And they also love building from weak to strong. Now, not only can you build characters from weak to strong, you can build your kingdom from weak to strong. Um, and, uh, and it's possible that the main characters are geniuses or there's usually someone, let's say there's a group of them and you can imagine any stories where they have an A-team. There's always a nerd. There's like the Star Trek has Spock. Um, um, there's always someone in that group of characters who's there to solve all the technological things. They're basically a human MacGuffin in a way. Um, anyway, back to kingdom building. So in Daedalus, the characters are young, albeit genius level, like Ender from Ender's Game. And so they start out they start out without much. So all they do is they rent a workshop off campus and they're developing their technology there. And so it's not this magical billion-dollar secret base. They don't have to have that. Just a little workshop is a cool thing that the characters have that's theirs and, 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 and adds value to the story. Um, and what they do there is they, they start researching technology and then they start selling that technology or they start patenting it and things like that. And that's where the kingdom building starts out. And I build it weak to strong. And eventually, like obviously there's 100 steps in between, but eventually they're building their secret base under the eye of the Sahara. And you look it up, that's a real place. And, um, and what they do is they build their massive base there, create their own academy, and they even build underground tunnels with mag rails that go under the earth and then under the ocean. And so they, and so that's all part of their kingdom building. So the base that they're building is part of their kingdom building. Um, and there's billions of examples of this in good fiction. Um, but that's just the story, what I did in the story, Daedalus. Okay, and the readers love that stuff. They love the bloody kingdom building. So it's adding value for the readers. So the co-hosts, the last question for the night until we get into to the um, in, into the questions from the readers, or oh, sorry, listeners, what are some of the kingdom-building examples that you use that really added value um, to the story and or made you really excited to read? Um, 
Now, we, can we have hands? Has anyone got some kingdom building examples that they've done? So it's where the characters have built a base or a thing and they've taken it from small and built it up to large. That's what it's about. That's what kingdom building is. If it was, if it was fantasy, it'd be like a castle and land and servants and peasants. But in science fiction, you could build a spaceship or you could build, um, um, as I said before, an underground secret base. Um, or you can build a mech and you've got all that technology thing you can work on. I think Amy is going to be the, our guinea pig. Um, probably not knowledge. Knowledge is not kingdom building. Kingdom building is things. It's like owning things. It's like owning land or, or a castle or an army. Kingdom build, you can build an army. Um, example in, in Daedalus, what they did is the all the – Mech academies around the world, you had to pay to go in there. It was very expensive, and only the richest one percent can afford it. It could afford to go. Um, and so, what I'll finish my example and then I'll throw it to you. Um, so, what they did was they built their own academy and, and they made it because they were wealthy from all their business enterprises. They made they gave people scholarships, and what they did is a, an idea I stole from Stargate um, Universe. They sent out um, games to pe- all the kids who were going to apply and the kids would play the games and the best 200 kids out of the billions on the planet, they took and gave a scholarship into the academy. So instead of getting the richest kids in the world for their academy, they got the most talented kids in, and that's kingdom building too because they're building an army of talented soldiers. All right, Amy, what's your example of kingdom building? You got your hand up? Is your um, sorry? I had my mute on. <laughs> I was talking. Uh, what I have in my book, uh, "Falling in Love with the King of Beasts," I actually have the the villain's kingdom building. So you have an existing world, um, and unknown to the or initially unknown to the protagonists, um, the villains are start with a, a small group of people. Um, and they're building uh, a second society outside of the uh, the main uh, the main center uh, for the anima. And what what happens is as they build and grow and uh, gain numbers, uh, there's a conflict within the story that increases the number of people that are essentially defecting to join them. And so this is the momentum for a war. At the same time, I've got a group within the uh, anime itself, within the good guys, who um, there's a prejudice against them. They are ostracized to a certain degree from their society. And they have, over the last couple decades, slowly been um, secretly training and growing their own ranks. And so they are... um, Unknown to the rest of the anima, they are building an army, but it's not an army designed to overthrow uh, the main king. It, it's entirely designed to protect themselves. So they teach each other and they train each other and they grow in their physical strength um, and knowledge. And in that way, they are. Um, it, it's it's something that I'm going to use later in the story. But that's the only examples that I can give you directly from my own content. So, yeah, so, and that's a great example. It's the same uh, idea. It's, it's building the army and it's um, and a secret. But, and also, and the, yes, and so the antagonist is, um, the villain is 
kingdom building, which is like a an element of threat um, that's increasing or uh, a threat that's overhanging you, and that's a good element to have in your story. So you've actually combined two there. The kingdom building is the the basically the guillotine that's hung, hanging over their head, and it's the and the, and the threat's ever increasing. Similar to when you have novels with um, there's an, an impending alien invasion as an overhanging threat of the aliens will invade. And um, in our Earth history, the most of the sometimes the greatest technological advancements until this century um, happened around wars. And wars got countries working together like they don't in peacetime um, or working in, in, internally together like they don't in peacetime. So sometimes you can use an alien invasion as a spur on for a society to really, um, really get together and start building and, 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 and researching technology where they normally would be a bit uh, 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 wishy-washy about it. Um, all right. I don't think we've got any more questions up from or any more, sorry, hands up on this topic. Now, do we have any questions in the chat? I've got Adam Sandler having some um, porridge because she was on mute. But, no, I can't see any questions. As the co-authors, have you seen any questions from the chat? Okay, so the differentiation between – I can see them. Um, so self-proclaimed, how do you differentiate hard sci-fi and soft sci-fi? Well, you can probably Google it up and see how many other people have differentiated. But really it comes down to hard sci-fi. You really need to know how things work and you explain how they work. And it's difficult to do unless you're a scientist or someone who's very well-versed in that um, um, and there's some good YouTube channels that go through different things that I use myself. I and and the thing is, I sort of sit in between. I do a little bit of hard, a little bit of soft. So soft sci-fi is where you just say, "I've got a laser gun. It shoots lasers, and those lasers kill people." So you don't explain how the laser works. You don't go into, "Okay, we need to mine this particular crystal, and we need to align this, and we need to do that." And you don't go into explaining how it works. So soft sci-fi. Soft sci-fi really just uses headings or labels for things. It says what they are and what they do, but it doesn't say how they work. Um, so the next one is from Soren. Um, how do you balance technical mumbo-jumbo? Okay, so that's a, that's a really good question because you don't want to get bogged down in technical mumbo-jumbo, and it's not something we have talked about. So what I normally do is... Um, is I keep it to a minimum, but we have some jargon that creeps into the story. And it's one of the cool things when you create your own jargon. So I think I talked to this to you guys before about the monsters. But anyway, in Daedalus, the cadets are building, uh, and all the cadets, not just them, it's a term that used in the world that I've created where there's power armor from, say, Starship Troopers or or, or Warhammer 40K. It's called power armor and or called exoskeletons, and they just shorten exoskeletons to exos. So they just instead of having this long name, you and I as humans, if we're dealing something every day and we're using them every day, you don't call it by its full name. Often you give it a nickname and a short name. So what I do is I turn a negative into a positive by having the characters go, well, we're not going to say uh, powered armored exoskeleton class one. or No, they'll just say exos and medium exos, et cetera, et cetera. All right. Um, now we've got a few more questions. 
Um, yes, Amy, you can say something about jargon. Thank you for tagging me because I wouldn't have known. <laughs> right, Amy. Fine. I just wanted to say really quickly, because this is something I worked in a critique group with a bunch of traditionally published and agented authors, and I did have to critique a sci-fi book a couple of different times. And one thing that I noticed as a reader, um, if you are creating jargon to essentially, um, you know, make your world unique, don't create jargon for things that don't need it, um, because the world feels more real if you are um, just, I, I guess, differentiating is the right word. What, what I observed in a story that I read was that somebody had literally renamed everything. They had renamed furniture. They had renamed paper. That You know what I mean? And what it did was it made the story more confusing rather than being this sort of, they meant for it to make the world richer, but it was too much. What you need to identify is the things that are unique about your world and give those their own language, not the things that people are familiar with. All right. Very good. Very good. So things that matter only and ignore other things. Um, all right. Let's move on. Lord of the Flies, I have a question how you think about all worlds and the characters that seem so difficult. Okay, so it is difficult and it's time-consuming, right? So it's not – it's actually not difficult. The only difficult thing about it is it takes time. So often I myself uh, – everyone's different, but myself, I plan a story and think about a story probably for six months before I start writing it. And what I do is when ideas pop in my head, I go back to my my um, my very expensive and um, intricate tool called Microsoft Excel. And I just have, I have basically a database for my, each of my stories in Excel with different pages covering plot, different pages covering characters, different places, pages covering technology, different pages covering um, tournaments, what what have you in in there? And I just go in, and as I think of things, I add it in. I slowly build up my world and build everything up before I start. And then when I start writing, I keep on adding to it as well, and things come up and I add to it. So it it, it, it is difficult. I think the first one you do, it might be average, but after the more you do it, it gets better. And you put those tools we talked about before, like Word and Anvil, might help. Um, now, Cam, Cammy001 has a question. Is it better to use a single single kingdom building or a complete globe building? Well, that really depends on your story. Really, that's just a personal choice for your story. So, um, of course, don't have it that your main character's kingdom keeps building and everyone just stays stock still. That's not realistic. As long as it's consistent, as, no, as long as it's logical, do whatever you like, really. So you can have a globe kingdom building or you could just have a single one okay so chad chad b i have ideas all the time some get written down some i think about in more depth than others but when i sit back and look at them all i feel like they all could be good or they could all suck like it doesn't matter which one i choose i have no strong emotions about it do you ever have this dilemma if you do how do you choose okay yes so often i just think about it um and the answer comes to me but there's a there's a trick you can do if you have a good idea, this is come. This is not from me. This is from um, Hemingway. Hemingway said that he never keeps notes. You know how I say, "Oh, I have an idea," and I go write it down. He said, "If it's a good idea, it will stick with you." So uh, often, um, 
often I have ideas and I'll write them down and then as I go along, I'll go, no, this is not working for me. I'm going to discard this. I'm going to do this. So basically, other than that, other than making the decision yourself or having a gut feel about it, that's I can't really help you any other way with that question. Um, okay. All right. So I think we're done with the questions. I think I haven't missed any, have I? I think we're done with the questions. Yeah. Uh, yes, it seems so. And um, I I know that a lot of people have problems when it has been discussed in the past about world building. And we are actually planning in the future to have like a seminar just for world building or creative creation and things like that. So, um, but yeah, because this is more about science fiction and things like that, we are trying to cover um, more about this. Yeah, we just really wanted to keep the because it's part of science fiction, the science fiction slant to world building, not world building in general. But anyway, I think we haven't run too far over time. Um, so we were 90 minutes on the um, on the seminar and then another 10 minutes with questions. So I think we've done pretty well there with what we plan to do. So thank you, everyone. Thank you, co-hosts, for coming along. And even Soren made it in the end after he got his chapter written. Thank you, Amy. All your answers were fantastic and you really added a lot of value. And same with Miss Reality Vice and the Xing Pen and Nagy, who uh, who was distracted with work. That's why he, he was noisy at the start and then he was quiet at the end. So thank you very much for everyone. I hope you got some value out of the seminar. And we'll see you next time.